Welcome to part 14 of our Hebrew study. We're still in uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, looking at the elementary teachings. We need to take one more week to look at baptism because it is such an important part and a controversial part as well. And so we just kind of want to show you some church history, some background, uh, some biblical, um, I guess, experiences or stories about baptisms to get a better picture of what we're talking about. To begin with, I'm going to show you something from my Jewish learning. Um, uh, basically, uh, by Rabbi Maurice Lam, and he's going to be talking about the, the aspect of conversion in baptism. He says this, submerging in a pool of water for the purpose not of using the water's physical cleansing properties, but expressly to symbolize a change of soul, is a statement at once deeply spiritual and immensely compelling. No other symbolic act can so totally embrace a person as being submerged in water, which must touch and cover every lesion, every strand of hair, every birthmark. Now, Again, a few things that I want you to see is that the Jews here are understanding it's a change of soul that takes place, but that it is a symbolic and deeply spiritual thing, and that it is a, an aspect of submerging, that everything must be covered. It's a burial. It's a death. And so um, it's life-changing, and not just a symbol, but they see that the water itself and what you do in the water is a symbol of something very literal that does take place. It continues here. Let me uh, show you some more. No other religious act is so freighted with meaning as this one, which touches every aspect of life and proclaims a total commitment to a new idea and a new way of life as it swallows up the old and gives birth to the new. The water of the mikveh, the baptism, is designed to ritually cleanse a person from deeds of the past. The convert is considered by Jewish law to be like a newborn child. What amazes me about this is doesn't this sound almost exactly like being born again? And not a total commitment is proclaimed. I, I, I love that. It, it, touches every aspect of life and proclaims a total commitment. In other words, you're sold out. It's not just a, oh, you know, yeah, this would be a great thing to do. It gives new birth. It, you become like a newborn child. The old is swallowed up. This all sounds really like what a, a Christian church would teach that happens in baptism. And yet this is coming from my Jewish learning. People who, by the way, are not, these are not uh, messianic or, or converted or saved Jews. It goes on, the mikvah is a spiritual womb. The human fetus is surrounded by water. It does not yet live. The water breaks in a split second and the child emerges into a new world. As soon as the convert immerses and emerges, he is a Jew in every respect. Now, one thing I am going to say, that fetus surrounded by water, it does not yet live. Uh, it is a living being, and I think he would even say that. That's not what, you know, he's not trying to say it's not alive. He's just saying it's not in our environment. But as soon as that child is born, it's converted. It's a new life. And that's what he's saying about baptism or a mikvah here is that you emerge a Jew in every respect. That is how I vital to the identity of a Jew is this process of baptism. You become a new family, a new identity. You've been grafted into the Jewish line. That's what they're saying. Now, I, I think there's some truth to that, that when we are baptized, we are grafted into the true Jewish line, the true Jewish covenant. In Romans, it says, what advantage is there in being a Jew? Much in every way, for theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Okay, And it goes on to giving all this list, but bottom line is the gospel has come 
through the Jew. Theirs are the covenants, it even says in Romans. And so we are grafted into that Jewish covenant, not vice versa. And therefore as well, you can see the seriousness of this. It's not about feeling a warm fuzzy when you get baptized, but rather recognizing a new life, that you have a new identity, and therefore your life should reflect that new identity. All right, you emerge different. In Titus chapter 3, verse 4, it says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is a, uh, it's talking about baptism. Uh, last session, last week, I had talked about this has nothing to do with us. It's not our commitment to God. It's God's promise to us. We see that here as well. It is not works of righteousness that we've done. It's not us going and doing something, but it's according to his mercy that he saves. How? Through the washing of regeneration. This baptism, this mikvah of renewal, regeneration, and it happens with the Holy Spirit. Now also, just like we talked about last week in Peter, it says that Noah was saved through baptism. Though through the baptism, or through waters of baptism, I should say. Not by baptism, but through the waters. Okay? So, we're, we're, we're talking about something here that is so vital and important to the faith, and yet the church today in many cases, have just made this nothing but a symbol and not that important. By the way, this word regeneration that I have underlined there, in Greek, it literally is new birth. Therefore, born again. Washing of born again. Uh, do you believe? You know, do you believe in God? Well, good. Are you born again? See the difference? Somebody can say, yeah, I believe in God. But are they born again? Maybe not. Because even the devil believes in God. We don't just believe in God, we know him. And part of knowing him is following his commands and being washed and saved by being regenerated through the Holy Spirit. And part of that happens, it says right here, through baptism, through the washing of regeneration, you are born again. In other words, when you are baptized, you are immersed, you are, you are buried, you are in the grave, you are dead. But you don't stay there. You are merged with faith in Christ. You rise with him and you come new uh, from the grave. John 3 verse 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So even Nicodemus was struggling with this idea of being born again, this newness. Now, we just saw that how this takes place through the washing of regeneration, a, a mikvah, a baptism. We see that the Jews see the same exact thing in their understanding of baptism. just amazes me. Now, we're going to continue here in verse 5 of John 3. It says, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? So, again, he's talking about baptism here. Uh, Jesus is saying you can't enter the kingdom without it. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I know that might ruffle some feathers here, but I want you to see a couple of things. We might say, well, what about the thief on the cross? 
Well, again, I think that God's grace can go past uh, certain things, but there's a connection. I don't think it's just the act of baptism. It's what baptism is. Remember, it is part of repentance and faith believing in Jesus Christ. And so if you are not baptized, bottom line is you're not going to be a believer. Because if you're not a believer, you're not going to get baptized. Therefore, it's also in connection with faith here. And that's why I think you cannot be saved or enter the kingdom of God unless you have faith and are baptized. There's a connection there. But some have said, you know, born of water. When you're born of your mother, you come out, uh, the, the water breaks, there's the water, and then the Spirit when you have faith, the Holy Spirit. But I, I don't think that's what this is saying here. He's saying unless you're born of water and the Spirit, we see that there is a baptism and immersion, but through that immersion, in rising up, you are given the Holy Spirit. And that is where faith comes from. So ultimately, uh, just to kind of recap, it's saying this, without the Spirit of God, without you believing and receiving the Spirit, you can't be saved. Okay? And so uh, the, the Spirit works in many ways, and, and I'll leave it at that. But let me show you even modern-day Jewish teaching here again, um, talking about baptism. It says the baptism of the proselyte, now that's one who has um, basically converted to Judaism, and they have to be baptized to do so, have to be circumcised to do so. It says the baptism of the proselyte has for its purpose his cleansing from the impurity of idolatry and the restoration to the purity of a newborn man. The bathing in the water is to constitute a rebirth. Wherefore, the gur is like a child just born, and he must bathe in the name of God. L'shem Shamayim. So, this is coming from the Jewish Encyclopedia, but what you're seeing is that it is clear they're not cleaning dirt from the body, but there's something spiritual going on. It is a cleansing of your sin. It is a rebirth. Now, by the way, ger there, the ger is like a child that is just born. Ger is uh, the, the Hebrew for a Gentile or a sinner. All right? Now, keep in mind, Acts says there is no other name by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. So I don't want you to think that you can be saved by being a Jew and converting to Judaism and being baptized, and baptism saves you by itself. No, the name of Jesus. Jesus is connected to this baptism. It goes on here in this Jewish encyclopedia to say, that is, assume the yoke of God's kingdom. That's what you're supposed to do. When you're baptized, you're assuming the yoke. What's a yoke? A teaching, a doctrine. So you're, you're grabbing on, taking hold, clinging to the yoke, the teachings of God, imposed upon him by the one who leads him to baptism, or else he is not admitted into Judaism. In other words, if you don't grab on to the teachings of God, you are not going to be a proselyte. You're not going to be accepted into the family. Well, really, while... There are things that I would disagree with here, and that being that these people are without Messiah. You connect Messiah to this, nothing could be more true. Jesus even said, my yoke is easy, referring to his teachings, the Torah. And therefore, he says, my yoke is easy. Now, if we are not baptized, it means that we don't seem to be taking the yoke, the teachings of Jesus, which would seem to say then that you're not a part of God's family. This sounds exactly like what the New Testament was saying when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus. Unless you are born again, you cannot be admitted into the kingdom of God, into the family. So the Jews are right on. They're just missing Jesus and everything comes together. Let's go back to my Jewish learning here in, in the, the text of how to convert to Judaism. If you want to convert, you have to do these things, okay? The newborn Jew takes on a Hebrew name. 
but a given name only is not sufficient to locate a person within the Jewish tradition. When Jews sign legal documents or are called up to the Torah, their parents' names are appended to their Hebrew names to locate them in Jewish spiritual space. So, it goes on, a convert traditionally adopts Abraham and Sarah as spiritual parents, and in legal situations is referred to as Ben Avraham Avanu, son of our father Abraham, is what that means. Or, Bat Sarah Imanu, daughter of our mother Sarah. So, in other words, when you convert, you are prescribed a new parent name, basically, or a new parent, that is Abraham and Sarah. Again, amazingly accurate. This is exactly the heritage that we take on according to what Scripture says in Galatians 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is exactly what the Jewish commentary essentially laid out. But they're just missing Yeshua. But we are now, when we come into the faith, we become spiritual Jews into the Jewish covenant. We are now inheriting the promise of our parents, Abraham and Sarah. This is how important baptism is. Those promises become yours when you are baptized. Now again, this is what the Jews see, and this is what the New Testament says. It's just from a slightly different angle that they're seeing it. We go on to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. He's talking about Gentiles here. That before you were without Christ, strangers to the covenant, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we were aliens and not part of Israel or the promises or the covenants. But now, now because of Christ, we are part of Israel, part of the covenant, the promise. We are grafted in, taken in to God's promises and covenant with them. That's how we are children of Abraham. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, this shows the intensity of how baptism was preached. Okay, an urgency, as I said, not seen in the church today. Look at this. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Basically, go up to it. Now, a couple of things here before we continue on in this story. Eunuchs were often in positions of high power because they could be trusted. Uh, you didn't have to worry about them trying to steal the throne by, you know, sleeping with the queen or things like that. But know that this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, is a Gentile. And Gentiles are forbidden to enter the assembly of the Lord, according to Deuteronomy 23. But clearly, he's a God-fearer. Not a proselyte, he hasn't circumcised and been baptized into the Jewish faith, but he fears God. He would be a God-fearer, they called it. Why do we? How do we know that? Well, because he's coming to Jerusalem to worship God. And so, I believe that this man would be a saved man. But, God tells Philip to go to this man, basically to explain to him things more accurately, more fully. And here's what we see in verse 30. 
So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? He said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Well, I'll tell you, I, I love this story, and I'm going to explain why here in a moment. But uh, this man, is he, he's not ashamed. He doesn't care if people hear him reading Isaiah 53, which is talking about the Messiah. He's reading it out loud. He, Philip can hear what he's saying, and I, I just love that. His boldness, unashamedly, just reading from Scripture, not caring if anybody can hear. He doesn't care what people think of him. Now, he would have known, since he was a Gentile, that he was not allowed in the assembly of God, according to the Jews. But he doesn't care. He still believes in God. He knows that God loves him. Now, normally, Philip, though, would not associate with a man like this, a Gentile. But God tells him to. And so he does. He goes up and he sits with him. It's very important to see that because that would be breaking Jewish law right there. Now, I said Jewish law, not God's law. That was a man-made thing. But as we continue in this story, it just gets better. Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, Isaiah 53, preached Jesus to him. So I guess the Old Testament is all about Jesus, just as Jesus even said, these are the scriptures that testify of me. Verse 36, now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he was bab or he baptized him. We're getting into some amazing stuff here. We don't know all what Philip told him, but obviously Philip thought that it was extremely important to bring baptism to the table because we really don't get that in Isaiah 53. But Philip must have been teaching about baptism because as soon as this eunuch sees water, he wants to be baptized. And whatever Philip was saying, it so convicted this eunuch's heart that he seems to have been searching for it, yearning for it. He understood that if I'm a believer, I should be baptized. It's like I said last week, if your church isn't having baptisms and people aren't asking to be baptized, maybe you're not preaching everything you should be. Philip then asks him a question, though, when he sees, uh, you know, after the eunuch sees this water. He, he has to ask what qualifies him to be baptized. He says, if, it's an important word there, if you believe with all your heart, you may. In other words, belief is a very important part of being baptized. But we have to ask belief in what? Well, he pretty much answers that question because the eunuch says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You see, he believed that Jesus is God, not just a Messiah, but the Messiah. There were many Messiahs, anointed ones, but there's only one, capital M, Messiah, and it is the Son of God, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Well, remember Satan when tempting Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, what, was, what he always said was this, if you are the Son of God, you know, cast, the, cast yourself down from here. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. This was a vital part of belief. 
You see, the Bible says that the devil believes in God and shudders. And the devil was constantly trying to test Jesus and saying, well, if you are the son of God, this Ethiopian eunuch doesn't look for proof. He declares you are the son of God. And this defines belief. And it's what separates us from Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, and virtually all other pagan or cultic false religions and churches. You see, we know Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I want to take you into something that I think is the most awesome part of this story altogether. Okay, he's reading Isaiah 53. I can guarantee you that as soon as Philip left, that this Ethiopian eunuch continued to read those scriptures. And you know what? It's just a couple of chapters later, and this is what he's going to be reading in Isaiah chapter 56. It says, Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Isn't that amazing? Keep in mind, this eunuch is a son of the foreigner. And he says, don't let someone like that say that God has separated me from his people, that I'm not welcome into the kingdom of God. Can you imagine this Ethiopian eunuch reading this after he had just experienced a Jew coming into his chariot and baptizing him and telling him about Jesus? breaking down that wall of hostility between Jew and Greek. It goes on, nor let the eunuch, oh, he'd be reading that thinking, this is written to me. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them, I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I love that. Okay, you want to talk about the Lord speaking to someone's heart. I think I would love to have been in that chariot to see this Ethiopian eunuch after he had this talk with Philip reading through the scriptures and seeing this, it's like, wow, this is what just happened to me. I'm not a dry tree. I'm not separated from God's people. Okay, And I will obey, keep God's commands, keep the Sabbath, hold fast to his covenant. He is going to give me a better name that shall not be cut off. Here's a, an Ethiopian eunuch who has been cut off in a sense. And he says, no, you will not be. You are my child. I love that. Anyway, we need to move on into Acts chapter 22, verse 12. We see that even Paul, not just Philip, but Paul had an urgency for baptism. Philip clearly taught it, clearly had an urgency for it. So does Paul here. In Acts chapter 22, it says, Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witnesses or his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Okay, here is a guy who is just coming into the faith. He just realizes, wow, Yeshua was the Messiah. And Ananias is saying, why are you waiting? Arise, get up, be baptized, wash away your sins. Call on the name of the Lord. This is after Paul has been struck by lightning and he hears God, you know, telling him to go to Ananias. And so he does, and this is what happens. He, Ananias points him to baptism, a washing away of sins, a calling on the name of Jesus. Guys, this isn't just a symbol. 
There's something deeper spiritually going on, isn't there? Even Peter. We've got Philip. We've got Paul. Peter falls right in line. He goes to a Gentile, Cornelius, here in Acts chapter 10. It says, To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, that's the Jews, who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So again, like I said before, Philip wouldn't have gotten into a chariot with a Gentile. These Jews are astonished. They say, wow, the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. They are being welcomed into our covenant. Verse 46 goes on, For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these things should not be baptized, or that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Now this is an important verse, and I wanted to get to this uh, earlier, remember I said that there's more to baptism, and you know we see that unless you are baptized, unless you're born again, you can't be saved. And I said the reason was is because unless you have the Holy Spirit, you can't be saved. But notice here that these people received the Holy Spirit before they had been baptized. Okay, that's very important to remember. Even at Pentecost, the Spirit came upon the Jews. And there it was not the Gentiles, okay, just the Jews, but the, many of them, you know, had gone through these ritual baptisms, but probably not the baptism of faith, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, I don't want to say that you have to be baptized to be saved. The Spirit came on them, but it is a command of God, and there is something important about it that we need to follow. And so this is why Peter in verse 48 commands them. He doesn't ask them, would you like to be baptized? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So uh, I know this situation is backwards to the normal, which is usually baptizing and then receiving of the Spirit. But uh, I, I'm glad it is because it shows us that there's, you know, I, I think if, if it was always that way, we would kind of have this, legalistic, step-by-step um, -step process into becoming a Christian. And it's not like that. It's about the heart. Now, last week as well, we talked uh, about the, uh, the, the, the first century didacti, which showed that the early church, what they believed, it was a, 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 a not a doctrine, but a, um, a document, that showed what the early church was teaching. And here it says in 9.5, Let none eat or drink of your Eucharist, but such as have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For of a truth the Lord hath said concerning this, Give not that which is holy unto dogs. Now, Eucharist, I think most of you know, but it's simply, uh, that's basically communion. The word basically means thanksgiving, uh, Greek word for that. Uh, so it is not a Catholic thing here. Okay, It was talking about Passover ultimately. And so it's a Greek word, not just a Catholic thing. But it's saying that you're not supposed to have communion. You're not supposed to celebrate Passover unless you've been baptized into the name of the Lord. In essence, unless you are a believer, because these are... Uh, things that only those who love God, only his children are invited to his table. In Mark 16, verse 16, it says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does, he who does not believe will be condemned. Notice it doesn't say, but he who does not believe and not baptized. Belief is the key for salvation. Baptism is simply connected to that belief. If you believe, you just will get baptized. 
because you will follow God's commands. All right? So, like I said before, there are different circumstances, like the thief on the cross. And uh, I believe he was saved because God said he was. But he didn't go through this baptism. So you don't have to be baptized to be saved. It was your heart connection. And that thief on the cross had a heart for God. There's no doubt in my mind that he would have been baptized if he could have gotten down off of that cross. So, again, it is faith, but baptism is connected to that faith. It's very much like works and faith, where James talks about faith without works is dead, that you are not saved by faith alone, but that you are saved by works. Works connected to your faith. So, it's the enemy who says that this baptism is not important. Now, I am going to take you to the Catechism of the Catholic Church and uh, speaking about baptism of infants to kind of take a look at this a little bit um, because basically what they're going to tell you is that if you don't baptize a baby and it dies, that child will lose its salvation. And while I appreciate the urgency that they have, I don't necessarily agree with all their doctrinal stands on this because um, we, we see that baptism, a very important part of it, is repentance. And Scripture gives that as a requirement to be baptized. So look at this here in the Catholic Catechism in uh, what is labeled 1250, Baptism of Infants. It says, born with a fallen human nature and tainted by original sin, children also have need of a new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God, to which all men are called. The sheer gratuitousness of the grace of salvation is particularly manifested or manifest in infant baptism. Now, look at this. The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. In other words, you will deny that child's salvation if you don't get it baptized shortly after birth. Guys, you know, I've known people who have raced to the hospital to get a baby baptized to make sure that that baby would be saved because its life was in danger. Okay, let me ask you, how long does it save them for? Usually these people do not believe in an age of accountability or anything like that. Well, how long is that baby saved for? Just until it grows up and decides to, you know, not follow God? What is it? You see, there's an inconsistency here. Let's go to Acts chapter 8, verse 35. It says, And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, what I want you to see here, why I went back to revisit this, is because there was a confession and a belief. When asked, Can I get baptized? We talked about it before, but it's important in this context as well. That Philip said, Yes, if. If you believe, you may. Okay, so belief goes or is connected to the waters of baptism here. In Romans 10, verse 9, these are the requirements that uh, an infant, I, I don't think, can do. It says that if you confess with your mouth that Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So here even Romans 6 is talking about a baptism being a death. And then it goes on to chapter 10, continuing to talk about this belief and what it entails. Confession. All right? Confession with your mouth, believing in your heart. In other words, you're going to die under the law, and an infant can't understand the law, which kills. Thus, that infant won't and can't repent. Now, 
I know that uh, I've grown up in a church that um, uh, teaches infant baptism, and for many years I believed that uh, based on the Genesis covenant of Genesis chapter 15, we see that they were to be circumcised to be part of the family of God and to be received into the covenant, and that was done at eight days old. And like I said before, an eight-day-old baby can't say, hey, sign me up. I want to be part of this. It was God's promise to that child, not my promise to God. And therefore, as a child, when we go to Colossians chapter 2, it basically says that the old uh, covenant was um, a sign of being a part of that was circumcision. Now under the new covenant, you are circumcised not with the hands of men, but with circumcision done by the Spirit through baptism. And so it's basically saying our heart is circumcised by God, by the Holy Spirit in baptism. So I do think there's some aspect of truth still to that. That baby doesn't have to say, hey, sign me up. I want to be part of your kingdom that there is an aspect of God's faithfulness to his promise, just as there was in circumcision. That the baby didn't say, hey, sign me up. God just said, hey, I want you. That God does the same for us. And so I grew up in the church that teaches infant baptism and would always kind of go to this for that and saying, well, a baby doesn't need to say, sign me up. It's God's promise to us. And therefore, I'm not necessarily against infant baptism under the right situations. I am against it, however, in this idea that says you have to baptize this baby or else it's going to hell. That we baptize this baby to be saved. You see, there is a connection in faith. And that's why um, I was baptized as a baby, but as an adult, I was baptized again because I wanted to make a confession, not an outward symbolic profession of faith, but a confession of my sins and to basically do what God had commanded to do here. Now, I'll be honest, I, I again, I, I think that because of my baptism, when I was a baby, God still was coming to me and saying, hey, this is my child. But that would not have gotten me into heaven. I needed to come to a point to where I would believe and confess Jesus before I was going to be truly saved. We can go and look in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, and it says, Moreover, your little ones and your children who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. It's showing that children have no knowledge of right and wrong. So what does that mean for a baby that is um, uh, you know, dying when it's just right there in the hospital? Does it go to hell? Well, I'm not saying that. I don't know what happens. It's not my job to tell you what happens. My job is to just trust that God knows what he's doing. But I will say this. If baptism was connected to circumcision, and you had to be eight days old to be circumcised, we can go back and see that when David's child with Bathsheba, the first child there before Solomon is born, it dies when it is seven days old. It never was circumcised. And what does David say? That I will go to him. He will not go to me, but I will go to him. Seems to indicate that David had faith and belief that that child was going to be with the Lord. Okay, Why all of the details? I don't know. All I'm saying is that's what the scriptures say. But it is not because of the baptism. Let me go back to this catechism of the Catholic Church in talking about the baptism of infants in 1252. Last time we looked at 1250. It says, The practice of infant baptism is an immorial tradition of the church. There is explicit testimony to this practice from the second century on, and it is quite possible that from the beginning of the apostolic preaching, when whole households receive baptism, infants may also 
have been baptized. This is what I was uh, taught growing up. Well, infant baptism can be supported because Philip and the jailer there, he baptized, you know, his whole family. Well, I always thought that was a really strange and, and ridiculous argument because what if that jailer didn't have an infant in his household? There's a, a, a high probability that he didn't. And so I think this is a terrible uh, support for infant baptism. Okay, and again, th that story, this whole household, I think, is what they're referring to in this catechism. So um, just don't use that as your argument. I think that is an extremely weak argument. But notice as well what this catechism calls infant baptism. A tradition of the church. Guys, baptism is much more than a tradition. It's a command of God, and uh, maybe we have made it a tradition, but that's not what it's supposed to be. Well, going back to Acts chapter 16, it says in verse 29, Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. This is when the jailer is there. There's an earthquake, and the jails basically are emptied out. And the jailer is about to commit suicide because he knows his life is going to be taken. Uh, if he lets a prisoner go, then he's got to die. Well, it goes on in verse 30. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer is asking this. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So again, here it's belief. Belief is a vital part. Verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took, that, took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. So what followed belief? Fruit, action, obedience. And then immediately he and his family were baptized. Immediately shows the urgency of this. Clearly, Paul and Silas were teaching the importance of baptism or else it would not have come to his mind. When he asked, what must I do to be saved? Believe. And then they went on teaching things that we don't you know, have recorded here, but clearly baptism was part of it. So, again, very important to see that connection of belief with baptism. And yet this is the text that is always used for infant baptism. There's really no indication of it outside of the fact that his family was baptized. Don't know that he uh, had babies and the very fact that belief is connected to it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. It says, yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Besides that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Uh, this is also a text that's used for infant baptism to say, look, the whole household of Stephanus was baptized. What I like to point out is there are churches who have made baptism very important, which is good, but then they let that pendulum swing too far to make baptism a matter of, well, salvation in itself. That's a problem. Again, belief and faith are connected to this, just like with faith and works. Baptism and belief are connected. And the problem that I have, or what I, I should say maybe what I like about this, is that in the context, he's saying, well, I baptized this guy, I baptized this person, and beyond that, I, I don't know. That baptism isn't the end all. It wasn't the, the act of baptism that Paul was so proud of. He was proud that people believed in Jesus, and then they simply were obedient to the command to be baptized. Today, churches are like, well, we baptized 15 members this year, and they're proud of the act of the baptism. Paul couldn't even remember who else he had baptized. It was like it was kind of a back burner kind of thing. So while it is very important, and he saw the urgency of it, the real key was faith and that people believed in Yeshua as a son of God. And then baptism was just kind of a natural uh, result of that belief in obedience. Now, 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15, it says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Once more again, uh, it just it talks about the household, but it doesn't say anything about infants. But the part that I really want to focus on is that they devoted themselves to the ministry. In other words, a result of their faith was to be baptized and to continue to follow God's commands. They devoted themselves to ministry. Well, let's look a little bit more at some church history here. And we can see Cyprian of Carthage. This is from 210 to 258 AD when he was around. And he writes about this uh, baptism of infants saying this, But in respect of the case of the infants which you say ought not to be baptized within the second or third day after their birth, and that the law of ancient circumcision should be regarded, so that you think that one who is just born should not be baptized and sanctified within the eighth day, we all thought very differently in our council. So this basically is an in-house dispute about infant baptism that's going on. And there were people saying that you should wait until the eighth day to be baptized, because that's what they did in the Old Testament with circumcision. And Cyprian here is disagreeing with that as you are going to see when he continues, okay? He's saying, waiting to the eighth day, it's very different. I, I disagree according to our council, and here's why. For in this course which you thought was to be taken, no one agreed. Nobody agreed with this, waiting till the eighth day. But we all rather judged that the mercy and grace of God is not to be refused to anyone born of man. For as the Lord says in his gospel, the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. As far as we can, we must strive that, if possible, no soul be lost. In other words, we got to baptize every baby as soon as it's born to save it. Now, to try and prove this point, there he quoted Luke 4.56. Okay, the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Well, the context here is when the disciples wanted to call fire down from heaven to destroy those who did not listen to Jesus. And then Jesus replies with these words. Therefore, this is completely taken out of context. The context was not baptism at all, but about saying that, hey, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven because these people don't listen to you? Completely different context. So, uh, already... This is um, a twisting of Scripture. How about Origen, 184 to 253 A.D.? Uh, he was clearly practicing infant baptism as early as 184 A.D. Now, 184 years after Christ, or 150 years, that's plenty of time to mess things up, but let's see what he says. In the church, baptism is given for the remission of sins, and according to the usage of the church, Baptism is given even to infants. If there were nothing in infants which required the remission of sins and nothing in them pertinent to forgiveness, the grace of baptism would seem superfluous. So, basically unnecessary. So what he's saying is if there was nothing in infants which required them you know, to repent, then there would be no point in them receiving grace. But because infants are sinful, they need this to be cleansed, to be forgiven. So, you know, like I said, I don't really necessarily have anything against infant baptism, but to say that that's what's saving them, uh, possibly, uh, well, definitely have an issue with that. But what I'm saying is that there's a lot we do not know. There is a command to do it, and the commands seem to always associate a belief and repentance. Therefore, I'm going to put the salvation of a baby who dies in God's hands, and I believe that that salvation is going to be apart from it being baptized or not. Let's go to Augustine, 
of Hippo from 300s to early 400s A.D. He says, even so, however, perhaps we must revert to the tenet which I mentioned just now, that infants ought to be baptized, because although they are not sinners, they are yet not righteous. Even an infant, therefore, must be imbued with the sacrament of regeneration, baptism, basically, lest without it, his would be an unhappy exit out of this life. And this baptism is not administered except for the remission of sins. In other words, if you don't baptize a baby, it is going to be an un unhappy exit. It will go to hell. Even though this baby, it says, they are not sinners, they're not righteous. They were born sinful. They were born in the flesh. Well, while I agree with that, I don't agree with the fact that it is administered for the remission of sins, that we are substituting baptism for the cross and for the blood of Jesus. Nothing can take away the sins except for the cross, Jesus shed blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Therefore, with an infant, okay, two days old, and it's baptized, it has no belief, it has not done anything wrong, but it hasn't done anything right, but it's still sinful because of the flesh, I must trust God that he knows what he's doing because without the blood of Jesus, there can be no forgiveness of sins, and that child is a sinner. It's that simple. But again, they're saying without it, that baby goes to hell. Okay, he continues, And if anyone seek for divine authority in this matter, Though what is held by the whole church, and that not as instituted by councils, but as a matter of invariable custom, is rightly held to have been handed down by apostolic authority. Still, we can form a true conjecture of the value of the sacrament of baptism in the case of infants from the parallel of circumcision, which was received by God's earlier people. Okay, this is again, he's referring back to what I have talked about before, that circumcision not in the flesh, but circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, as Colossians chapter 2 talks about. But note, Hippo is um, right next to Carthage there, which is north by uh, what we'll call Romish Africa, okay? Rome. And that means the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church basically has funneled this down throughout the ages. So there is a, uh, I think that's worth noting because it's going to kind of help us understand why they think the way they do. Tertullian, he fought against infant baptism, saying it was better to delay and wait. Now Tertullian was as early as 160 AD. He says, and so according to the circumstances and disposition and even age, of each individual, the delay of baptism is preferable, principally, however, in the case of little children. The Lord does indeed say, Forbid them not to come unto me. Let them come then when while they are growing up. Let them come while they are learning, while they are learning whither to come. All right, so what he's doing is he quotes Matthew 19 here. One of the primary passages that is actually used to support infant baptism. But they were bringing children to Jesus there in that Matthew 19 to lay hands on them, not to baptize them. And so he's calling them out on this, taking this Matthew 19 text, let the little children come to me, taking it completely out of context. And he says, yes, let them come as they grow up not as infants to be baptized. All right? So he's going to continue, and he says this, let them become Christians when they have become able to know Christ. Why does the innocent period of life hasten to the remission of sins? So let them basically come when they're old enough to ask. Now let's go back to the Didache, uh, that first century document again here, showing what early Christians believed. Um, it says here in 7.1, But concerning baptism, thus baptize ye, having first recited all these precepts, 
baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in running water. But if you have not running water, then baptize in cold or in warm. And if you have neither, pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Are infants going to be fasting before baptizing or being baptized? Yet this is what it's saying. You're to baptize, okay, concerning this baptism uh, of the Trinity, you are to do it, you know, in running water. If you can't find running water, do it in cold. If not cold, and warm. And if none of those, then just put some on the head. But it continues saying this, but before the baptism, let him who baptize, baptizes and him who is baptized fast previously. And any others who may be able, and thou shalt command him who is baptized to fast one or two days before. Do you know that even in the Jewish faith on Yom Kippur, children do not fast. They're exempt from this. And so even they have a division right away uh, on this topic. So this first century record does seem to indicate that baptism of infants was not taking place there. Though we do have it with those that were within the Catholic Church, those that were not do not seem to be practicing it. We're coming close here to the end, and I just want to show you um, a couple of other Christian men from the 1800s here, early 1900s. And what we hear, see here is Dr. A.S. Crapsy. He says, following the statement in the introduction to a sermon in defense of infant baptism, trying to defend that it was good to baptize infants, he says, now in support of this custom of the church, we can bring no express command of the word of God, no certain warrant of Holy Scripture. In other words, what he's saying is infant baptism is a custom of the church. It's not in Scripture. Nor can we be at all sure that this usage prevailed during the apostolic age. In other words, we can't even be sure that infant baptism took place at the time of the apostles. He goes on, from a few obscure hints, we may conjecture that it did, but it is only conjecture after all. It is true that St. Paul baptized the whole household of Stephanus, of Lydia, and of the jailer at Philippi. And in these households, there may have been little children, but we don't know that there were. And these inferences form but a poor foundation upon which to base any doctrine. He goes on, we who have studied the subject tell us that Christian writers of the very first age say nothing about it. It's by no means sure that this custom obtained in the church earlier than in the middle of the second or the beginning of the third century. In other words, it's the middle of the second or the beginning of the third century that we even see this happening as a custom in the church, let alone a command. So it's not from God's word, and he readily admits that. We have Dr. C.M. Mead in a private letter dating from May 27th of 1895. He says, though a Congregationalist, I cannot find any scriptural authorization of pedobaptism, and I admit also that immersion seems to have been the prevalent, if not universal, form of baptism at the first. So, Again, here is one who is pro-infant baptism, but admitting that this is tradition, that it's not something we get out of the Bible, and that, in fact, it even seems that they probably were not doing it because the, the way baptism was done was from immersion, a complete dunking, and that is not what you would do to a baby. Here we even see Strong's number 907, baptizo, which is the word here for baptism. And it even there in the definition will imply an immersion, a complete going under. To dip repeatedly, to immerse, to submerge. 
Okay, and so this is why when you go and you see these 850 plus mikvahs or baptismal uh, reservoirs in Israel that have been found, they're not these little things. They have stairs that you go all the way down into them because you need to be immersed. That doesn't seem like a practice that would have been done to infants then. Now, Hebrews chapter uh, 6, verse 1, just to close out here now, uh, I want to just kind of recap because this is the text that we have been talking about. It says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The question is this about the baptism of Yeshua um, or the baptism of cups, you know, and different articles in their ritual cleansing. Is That's why we see baptisms here. There are a number of them. You've got the baptism of John. You've got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You've got the baptism of Yeshua. You've got the baptism of cups and articles of clothing and everything. Okay? But all of them are elementary teachings. Every one of them. And so let's close with this verse in Acts chapter 19, verse 4. Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. I want you to see here, this is John's baptism. And even in John's baptism, it was connected with the laying on of hands just as it is in Hebrews chapter 6. You see that? It says the baptisms laying on of hands. I wanted you to see that of the six principles here, they are combined in three sets of two. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith, so that repentance and faith are connected. Then, doctrines of baptisms, the laying on of hands. In other words, the laying on of hands was connected with baptism, just like we see there in Acts 19. And then finally, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. At the resurrection is when there will be judgment. And so, these six principles of elementary truths are combined into three sets of pairs. And that's what we see here in Acts 19. Laying on of hands and the Holy Spirit. So, laying on of hands and the Holy Spirit came about at the time there of baptism. So there is a connection with the Spirit again and baptism through the laying on of hands here. Well, with that, um, hopefully you're gaining some extra insight here to baptism. We are going to uh, be leaving baptism, and next week we'll be talking about the laying on of hands, which again is connected to that some, uh, in some way, not always, but that and also just uh, willfully sinning and falling away, that once we're baptized, that we have a responsibility, a responsibility to walk away from sin, to follow after God. So we'll talk about that next week.